The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Today we're going to talk about the question, does eschatology matter? Good. Then we're done. Then we're done. (laughs) Is the doctrine of eschatology important? Now, I hope you understand, eschatology is the study of end times. It's the study of the return of Christ. When will Christ return? So it's important. Is it important? Does it matter? You know, I get that question a lot. People will ask me, why is this important? I mean, why does eschatology matter? Why does, it know if, why does it matter if we believe the Lord's already returned or not? Well, my answer is always the same. It is this. Does truth matter? And if it doesn't, then we don't need to study the Bible at all. But if truth does matter, then eschatology matters because it's in the Bible and it's a truth. Now, this morning for our study... I want to give you several reasons, actually four points, no poem, but four points on does eschatology matter? Why is preterism, why is the doctrine we believe of preterism important? First of all, eschatology is a major theological issue in the scripture. R.C. Sproul says that two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly directly eschatological. Other experts say 25 to 30 percent of the whole Bible is eschatological. James Montgomery Boyce writes this In the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books, with the exception of Galatians, which deals with a particular doctrinal problem, and the very short books such as 2nd and 3rd John. And Philemon. So 318 times and 260 chapters. That kind of makes you think it's important. Ray Stedman writes this. Perhaps you have recognized in reading your Bible. He's assuming something there, right? <laughs> I hope he's right with you all. Assuming you reading your Bible. That this is the most frequently mentioned truth in all the New Testament. This great hope of the appearing again of Jesus Christ underlines every other truth in the New Testament. It is found on almost every page of our New Testament. So the second coming of Christ is very, it's an important subject. It's something that we should understand. And yet, you know, what really surprises me, it's something that Michael Heiser says he doesn't really care about. Eschatology, he doesn't really care about it. How can we ignore something that is mentioned so often in the New Testament? How can we not care to understand something that is addressed 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament? All right, so it's a major theological issue in the Scripture. Secondly, salvation is tied to eschatology. Now, Let me explain that, because this is really important. When I say that, I mean historically, not personally. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But there's a big distinction there. How much salvation you currently think you have depends on your eschatology. 
See, if you were to die right now, where would you go? Well, how you answer that question depends on what your eschatology is, or should depend on what your eschatology is. Because according to the Bible, no one goes to heaven prior to the second coming. Look at what Yeshua said in Mark 10.30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Mark says, now in this time, and then in the age to come. Luke uses these same words, Luke 18.30. He says, who will not receive many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what does Yeshua mean when he says they will receive eternal life in the age to come? Well, commenting on and in the age to come, Sweet says this, the age which is to follow the parousia. Now see, I agree with him there, but is he saying that no one has eternal life until the second coming? That's what he's saying. That sure sounds like that. Well, commenting on and in the age to come eternal life, Weist in his word study says this, the authorities are silent on all this, and the present writer confesses that he's at a loss to suggest an interpretation. The best he can do is offer the usage of the Greek words in question. Now, as should be obvious, this phrase is troubling to many. To understand what Yeshua is saying here, we need to understand that all through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. We have this age and the age to come. And to understand the understanding of these two ages and when they change, listen, is fundamental to interpreting the Scriptures correctly. You're going to miss, if you don't know what time it is, you're not going to know where you are on the timeline. You're not going to know what's for you and what's not. Now, I, I don't want to go into this in depth here, but if you want more in depth on this whole subject of the age, this age and the age to come, in 1 John, we have a message, it's called Transformed at the Second Coming, go into a lot more detail there, so go to that message and catch up, all right? The New Testament writers lived in the age that they called this age. Now, to the New Testament writers, the age to come was future, but it was very near because this age, the one they lived in, was about to end. This age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible calls this age. This age of the Bible is the age of the Old Covenant. It was about to pass away in the first century. It should be clear to you that this age is not the Christian age in which we live. In the first century, the age of the Old Covenant was fading it was fading away and it would end completely when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. See, if eternal life was a condition of the age to come, then does this mean that the New Testament saints who lived in this age didn't have eternal life? Or we could ask the question this way, when did believers receive eternal life? You say, well, the New Testament writers had it. Well, again, we talked about this recently, the already but not yet. They had it in form, but it wasn't complete. Remember, I said the already but not yet only pertains to the transition period, not beyond that. So to answer the question, we need to first understand that prior to Yeshua's messianic work, man did not go to heaven. When men died, they went to a holding place of the dead and waited for the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. 
In the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they were prior to the resurrection is Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek is Hades. Now, if Yeshua has not yet returned in His second coming, then no one has eternal life yet. No one is in heaven yet. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. So He's saying we will not precede those who are asleep. So the dead are going to get there first. That's what he's saying. All right. And he goes on, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, if the dead have not yet been resurrected, which happens at the second coming, then nobody is in heaven yet. But where do most Christians believe they go at death? Heaven. So they have a wrong eschatology, but they still think they go to heaven unless they really understand their eschatology. Have you ever been to a Christian funeral? They're in heaven. Everybody's in heaven. Even if they're not saved, everybody can go to any, any funeral you go to, you know, they're in a better place. But heaven was not opened until the second coming because salvation was not complete until the return of Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming. His appearing is said to be for salvation. Peter states that their salvation was not yet completed. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So salvation was ready to be revealed when? In the last time, which would happen at the return of Christ. So if Christ has not returned, salvation is incomplete, and no one has yet gone to heaven. Salvation is tied to eschatology, in that the second coming brought the fullness of salvation. Now, historically, that's what I said, salvation is tied to eschatology, historically. But let's talk personally for a minute, because there's some today that believe that your personal salvation is depending on a correct eschatology. There's some people out there who say, we who hold to the preterist view, the full preterist view, are not Christians. They believe that if you hold to that, you're just not saved. Which means that you cannot be saved without a correct eschatology. And preterists have been labeled by some as non-Christians. It's just a way to attack what we believe and what we hold. Is eschatology part of the gospel? By that I mean, do we have to have a correct eschatology to be saved? I'd never read that anywhere. Have you? And I think this question is easily answered by going to the words that Peter preached to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Because in Acts 10, you know, you know, Peter goes into the house of Cornelia and he's preaching the gospel to them. All right? And what happens? As he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they get saved. All right? Now, here's what I want to do. First, we have to look at Acts 11 
what is said about the message here. In Acts 11, 13 and 14 says, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message. So Peter's going to, the message, and the message is the gospel. Now watch what he says about the message. By which you will be saved. So you hear the message, you'll get saved, you and all your household. So they were saved by Peter's message. Now back to chapter 10. In Peter's message, he ends up this way. While Peter was still saying these things, so Peter's preaching the message, it says the Holy Spirit fell. Here's the message. Peter's preaching it. Then the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard it. That is the message by which they are saved. And to have the Holy Spirit fall on them is to have salvation, because to have the Spirit is to have life. In this message, and I don't have time to go through it right now, but go back and read the message that Peter preaches. In that message, you won't see anything about works. You won't see anything about repentance. You won't see anything about eschatology. All right? And these people got saved by this message. What you do see is you see that Yeshua is the peacemaker who reconciles us to Yahweh through His death and resurrection. God accepts Yeshua's sinless life and substitutionary death on my behalf. And you have to believe that Yeshua can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You have to believe that He overcame death and that He can do the same for you. Faith is trusting Yeshua and Him alone for your salvation. You must know Him in order to trust Him, and you can only know Him as He's revealed in the Word of God. So, eschatology is not part of the Gospel. So when people are saying, oh, you're, you're not saved, you hold to that, I'm like, tell me what is needed for salvation then, because you've got a wide idea you know, of what has to happen. Because most people don't even know what eschatology is let alone have a right or wrong eschatology. They've never even heard of it. All right? So if you can't be saved unless your eschatology is right, then, like I said, it's just a way to attack us, you know, and try to intimidate. So eschatology is important because it's a major theological issue in the Scriptures. They talk about it all over the place. Secondly, salvation is tied to eschatology historically. Not personally, but historically. All right, because nobody received eternal life until the second coming. Thirdly, it affects your worldview. Do you understand that? It affects your worldview. All right, if we are living in the last days and this world's about to end at any moment, does that affect how you live? Yeah, why work for social change? We're just waiting for the rapture, we're waiting to get out of here, right? Why make any plans? Why save money? I'm leaving. I don't want to save it. In other words, let's just go into debt because we'll rack up all the debt and then we'll just leave, right? And people have done that. Believe me, when these people set dates, some people have gone out and charged up a storm just because, hey, the Lord's coming. And then the date came and left. And they're like, oh, man, now we got to pay the bill, all right? We live in the kingdom of God and we are to be affecting the world in which we live by the power of God. The kingdom of God has no end. It's an eternal kingdom. I remember as a young Christian, I never made any future plans because I was just any moment. Any moment. I remember when my daughter was born, my firstborn. And I remember holding her and I'm thinking, she'll never make it to school age. And then we put her in school and I'm like, "Mm, 
something's wrong here, you know. But I just, I felt it was that quick. It was that soon. It was coming. So why plan? It affects your worldview. You're ready to get sucked up out of here. That changes how you live. And if you figure like this is our home, we better take care of it. There's no great escape coming. All right. So it's, it's important because it's a major theological issue. Salvation is tied to it. It affects your worldview. And lastly, it affects your view of the modern day nation of Israel. And this is important, maybe more important than you think. And I'm going to park here for the rest of our time, and we're going to talk about this. Is God's prophetic calendar tied to the modern-day nation Israel? 90% of Christianity would say yes. God is through with the nation Israel. And a faulty eschatology, I think, is affecting our foreign policy. All right? Let me go further and say that I believe there's an inseparable link between Zionism and terrorism. Now, you may not agree with my conclusions, but at least hear me out, all right? I believe the war on terrorism will only really be won theologically. And therefore, I very strongly believe that eschatology matters. If our leaders were to hold to a preterist view of eschatology, it would drastically affect not only the Middle East, but our world as well. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world do you make the connection between eschatology and terrorism? Uh, It really revolves around Israel. What do you believe the Bible says about the modern state of Israel? Let me give you some quotes from Osama bin Laden. All right? Ben Laden says, our terrorism is a good accepted terrorism because it's against America for its purpose of defeating oppression so America would stop supporting Israel who is killing our children. So Ben Laden says that terrorism is connected to America's support of Israel. And I say that America's support of Israel is tied to eschatology. Listen to this quote from Ben Laden on September 23, 2001. We hope that these brothers, he's talking about Muslim casualties in Pakistan, are among the first martyrs in Islam's battle in the error against the new Christian Jewish crusade led by the big crusader Bush under the flag of the cross. This battle is considered one of Islam's battles. So he sees the war on terrorism to be a Christian Jewish In other words, an American-Israel crusade. He says Bush is waging war under the flag of the cross. He sees this to be a religious war. It's religious in nature. I believe this was religious in nature because it was driven by eschatology. In May 1997, during an interview with CNN, Bin Laden affirms his call to a holy war against Americans. He says, we have focused our declaration of jihad on the U.S. soldiers inside Arabia. The U.S. government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, criminal through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So he thinks this is hideous. He thinks what what America is doing here is definitely wrong. On Sunday, November 24, 2002, in answer to the question, why are you fighting us? Bin Laden's first response was, the British handed over Palestine with your help 
and your support to the Jews who have occupied it for more than 50 years. Years overflowing with oppression, tyranny, crimes, killing, expulsion, destruction, and devastation. The creation and continuation of Israel is one of the greatest crimes, and you are the leader of its criminals. And of course, there is no need to explain and prove the degree of American support for Israel. The creation of Israel is a crime which must be erased. Each and every person whose hands have become polluted in the contribution towards this crime must pay its price and pay for it heavily. So according to bin Laden, terrorism is a result of America's support of Israel. And as I've said, America's support of Israel is eschatological. Because of dispensationalism and Christian Zionism, most American Christians believe that we have a biblical mandate to stand with and protect modern-day Israel. Most Christians believe that. So, are Bible-believing Christians supposed to support a Jewish state for theological reasons? Such was the assertion of the late Jerry Falwell, and it's the assertion of John Hagee, and many other Christian leaders who could be called Christian Zionists. While related to the theology of dispensationalism, Christian Zionism is actually something different theologically. Let me try to define the terms here, and and I'm going to give you a little history. If you don't like history, tune out for a while. You can come back later, all right? But this is history that I think it's important that we understand. Zionism is a political movement based on the belief that the Jewish people deserve by right to possess the land of Palestine as their own. Christian Zionism is essentially a Christian prophetic support for the political movement of Zionism. All right? They see the modern state of Israel as the equivalent of biblical Israel and the forerunner of the return of Yeshua. Grace Halsell summarizes the message of Christian Zionism in this way. Every act taken by Israel is orchestrated by God and should be condoned, supported, and even praised by the rest of us. Is that a dangerous quote or what? And Christians buy this, people. They buy whatever Israel does, it's okay. The Christian Zionists, they want us to support them no matter what they do. And this includes the invasion of Lebanon, which killed or injured an estimated 100,000 Lebanese and Palestinians, most of them civilians. The bombing of the sovereign nations such as Iraq. The deliberate, methodical brutalizing of the Palestinians. Breaking bones, shooting children, demolishing homes, the expulsion of Palestinian Christians and Muslims from the land they have occupied for over 2,000 years. Palestinian Christians over there, Christians are turning against them to stand with Israel who are Christ-rejecting God-haters. We're turning against our brothers and sisters because we're so perverted in our theology that we think we have to support these Israelites who are Christ-rejecting God-haters. Now, dispensational Christian Zionism, which is a dominant format, is pervasive within mainline, evangelical, charismatic, and independent megachurches. 
It's just what most of them believe. Two evangelical Christian megachurch pastors from Texas are Robert Jeffries. I don't know if you heard of him, but I know you heard of John Hagee. All right. Hagee's the founder of the main U.S. Christian Zionist organization called Christians United for Israel. And Jeffries regularly preaches that ideology. The two men believe that the modern state of Israel is the result of biblical prophecy. All right, so God is behind them. That's their view. Advocates such as Robert Jeffries and John Hagee claim the number of Christian Zionists adds up to tens of millions of voters, significant financial resources, and a great deal of lobbying influence. And they're right. Hagee has boasted that his powerful organization has more influence than the famous Jewish lobbying group APAC. Hagee says this, when a congressman sees someone from APAC coming through the door, he knows he represents 6 million people. We represent 40 million people, the televents, he says. So, for some history now on how Zionism came about, let me give you some quotes from Donald Wagner. Donald Wagner is the director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at North Park University in Chicago. He's director of Evangelicals for Middle East Understanding. And in his book, Evangelicals in Israel, Theological Roots of a Political Alliance, he writes this, Through Darby's influence, I think we're all familiar with Darby, you know about dispensation, you know about Darby. He says, Through Darby's influence, premillennial dispensational became a dominant method of biblical interpretation and influenced a generation of evangelical leaders, including... Dwight L. Moody. And I think we were aware of that, right? He says, perhaps the most influential instrument of the dispensational thinking was the Schofield Reference Bible. Y'all had one of those at one time? I had one. 1909, the Bible came out. And this Bible included a commentary that interpreted prophetic texts according to a premillennial hermeneutic. Another Darby disciple was William E. Blackstone. And he brought this dispensationalism to millions of Americans through his bestseller, best-selling book, Jesus is Coming. And he wrote this in 1882. He wrote in 1882, by 1927, Blackstone's book had been translated into 36 languages. The book took a premillennial dispensational view of the second coming, emphasizing that the Jews had a biblical right to Palestine and should be restored there. Blackstone became one of the first Christian Zionists in America to actively lobby for the Zionist cause. Blackstone took the Zionist movement to be a sign of the imminent return of Christ. Wagner writes, Blackstone organized the first Zionist lobbying effort in the U.S. in 1891 when he enlisted J.P. Morgan... John D. Rockefeller, Charles B. Schreibner, you know these names, and other financiers to underwrite a massive newspaper campaign requesting President Benjamin Harrison to support the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. Now, similar efforts were underway in England, led by a social reformer, Lord Shaftesbury, who, like Blackstone, was so taken with Darby's eschatology that he translated it into a political agenda. 
So I, I want you to see that the whole thing driving this is a false eschatology. All right? And the seeds of Christian Zionist movement preceded Jewish Zionism by several years. In other words, before the political movement even came on the scene, the Christians are pushing this. All right? Lonnie Shaftesbury is also credited with, with uh, coining an early version of the slogan adopted by Jewish Zionist fathers Max Nardo and Theodore Herschel. Here's the slogan. A land of no people for a people with no land. Do you understand what they're saying there? They're saying that Palestine, there's no people there. There were people there, but they didn't count them as people, and they just drove them out of there. Both Lord Arthur Belfour, author of the famous 1970 Belfour Declaration, and Prime Minister David Lloyd George, the two most powerful men in British foreign policy at the close of World War I, were both raised in dispensational churches. So this is something just drilled into them. And they were publicly committed to the Zionist agenda for biblical and colonial reasons. Now, the Belfour Declaration was an official statement issued on behalf of the British government in 1917, announcing its support, in principle, of a proposed home for the Jewish people in Palestine. It was drafted by British Foreign Minister Arthur J. Balfour in concert with prominent Jewish leaders and the British cabinet and was issued by Balfour in the following communication to the second Baron Rothschild on November 2nd, 1917. He says, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights or political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Now this declaration, which Zionists interpreted as a promise for a Jewish state in Palestine, was formally approved by the representatives of the Allied governments at Versailles in 1919, and was the basis of the League of Nations mandate in Palestine. Notice Balfour's statement. He says, Clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This was totally ignored. Totally ignored. And during the late 1940s, Zionist guerrillas succeeded in throwing Palestine into havoc and eventually took over the land. The people that were there, they just drove them out. They just murdered them, whole villages. The result was disfranchisement of the people who had historically dwelt there for years. Elias Chahor, in his book, Blood Brothers, which, if you have not read it, I highly recommend it. If you want to understand what happened over there, uh, he, he says he's blood brothers, okay? He's an Arab, he's blood brothers with the Jewish people. So he doesn't really have an axe to grind, but he's just telling you the story of what actually happened when they came in. He talks about what it was like in Palestine as the Zionist guerrillas took over the land, driving them from their homes, 
and murdering whole villages. He talks about him and his family, you know, running into the woods and living in the woods because they were destroying their village. He talks about playing soccer one day in a field, kicking the ball, and they noticed a hand sticking out of the ground. And they had buried a whole village and bulldozed it over. This is what bin Laden was talking about when he said, the British handed over Palestine with your, referring to Americans' help, and your support to the Jews who have occupied it for more than 50 years, years overflowing with oppression, tyranny, crimes, killing, expulsion, destruction, and devastation. That's what he's talking about. The people that lived there, and like I said, there were many Palestinian Christians living there. And Christians in this country are supporting Israel who are killing the Palestinian Christians. So convoluted. Wagner goes on to say, by the early 1970s, numerous books, films, and television specials publicized the premillennial dispensationalist perspective. We're all familiar with that, right? Hal Lindsey made a virtual industry out of his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. It sold more than 25 million copies and led to two films as well as a consulting business with a clientele that has included several members of Congress, the Pentagon, and Ronald Reagan. Now, the fourth factor that stimulated the emerging evangelical Christian Zionist movement political agenda was the election of Menachem Begin as Israel's prime minister in May of 1977. Prior to Begin's election, Israeli politics had been dominated by the secular uh, party. Begin's Likud party was dominated by hardline military figures such as uh, Eaton and Ariel Sharon, and it was supported by the increasing powerful settler movement and by small Orthodox religious parties. Likud contingencies used the biblical name Judea and Samaria for the West Bank and employed a religious argument to justify Israel's confiscation of Arab land for settlements. Now, since God gave the land exclusively to Jews, they said, they have a divine right to settle anywhere in Eretz Israel. All right? It's it's their land, so they can just kill the people that are there and throw them out, and it doesn't matter. And evangelicals welcomed the Likud's leaders and endorsed their political and religious agendas. The final development that accelerated the alliance between Likud and the religious right was Carter's March 1977 statement that he supported Palestinian human rights. How about that? Including the right to a homeland. Now, Likud, when it came to power just two months later, immediately reached out to Christian evangelicals. Likud's strategy was simple, split evangelical and fundamentalist Christians from Carter's political base and rally support among conservative Christians for Israel's opposition to United Nations proposed Middle East peace conference. Within weeks, full-page advertisements appeared in major U.S. newspapers stating, The time has come for evangelical Christians to affirm their belief in biblical prophecy and Israel's divine right to the land. Now, targeting Soviet involvement in the UN conference, the ad went on to say, We affirm as evangelicals our belief in the promised land to the Jewish people. We would view with grave concern any effort to carve out of the Jewish homeland another nation or political entity. 
The ad was financed and coordinated by Jewish Institute for Holy Land Studies, which is an evangelical organization with a Christian Zionist orientation. And several leading dispensationalists signed the ad, including Kevin Kantzer of Christianity Today, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, singer Pat Boone, dispensational theologian and Dallas Theological Seminary president John Walvert. So all the Christians are getting behind this because all these big leaders are supporting it. Evangelicals, major Jewish organizations, and pro-Israel lobbies supported Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election. And they say that Carter's loss of the evangelical vote played a significant role in his defeat. Likud policy was aggressively representing by APAC, which is American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, both on Capitol Hill and within the Reagan administration. For example, when Israel decided to invade Lebanon in the spring of 1982, Begin sent Ariel Sharon, his defense minister, to Washington to enlist the Reagan administration support. They wanted us with them. And by late May, Sharon was reportedly given the green light by Secretary of State Alexander Haig And within days of the June invasion, full-page ads appeared in the leading newspapers requesting evangelical support of the invasion. And they got it. Begin developed a unique relationship with Reagan and many fundamentalist leaders, especially Jerry Falwell. Falwell and his moral majority had long supported Israel. And in 1979, Grace Halspell reports, Israel gave Falwell a Learjet. How nice. And in 1981, gave him the prestigious Jabotinsky Award during an elaborate dinner ceremony in New York. See, this this whole political movement is being driven by people's false theology. When Israel bombed Iraq's nuclear plant in 1981, Begin called Falwell before he called Reagan. And he requested that Falwell explain to the Christian public the reason for the bombing. See, when they want to keep the Christians on their side. In March 1985, while speaking to the conservative rabbinical assembly in Miami, Falwell pledged to mobilize 70 million conservative Christians for Israel and against anti-Semitism. He also takes credit for converting Senator Jesse Helms into one of Israel's staunchest allies. Helms soon became the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Reagan administration regularly conducted briefings and seminars for its Christian right supporters, briefings in which the pro-Likud lobby, Americans for Safe Israel and APAC, participated. Among the approximately 150 Christian fundamentalist leaders were invited to the event. and That included Hal Lindsey, Jimmy Swagger, Jim and Tammy Baker, Pat Robertson, Tim and Beverly LaHaye. Reagan himself was a committed Zionist. Now, his support for Israel derived from both strategic political concerns and a vague dispensational perspective. The same can be said about President Trump. At the May 2018 ceremony marking the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, Robert Jeffries and John Hagee, who were advisors to Trump, I'm like, wow, you want to get some whacked out advisors, okay? But they have big following, so they're like, oh, these must be you know, smart Christian guys. Both advisors to Trump 
they earnestly prayed and thanked God for making the state of Israel possible and Trump for having the courage to acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people. Now, in an interview with Breitbart News, Hagee related that he told Trump, the moment that you move the embassy, I believe that you will step into political immortality. The Palestinian Christian human rights lawyer, Jonathan Katab, argued in a Jewish Voice for Peace webinar that Trump's embassy move was done to please his Christian Zionist base rather than AIPAC or Netanyahu. And I agree, you know, because people think this is, this Christian is supposed to believe this, they're supposed to stand behind this, so, you know, let's keep going this direction. Now, just to show you how messed up Hagee's Zionistic theology really is, you probably already know that, okay, but these are people who are advising you know, political leaders. Hagee said this, I'm not trying to convert Jewish people to the Christian faith. What faith are you trying to convert them to? None. He's not. They don't need to be converted, he says. He says this, in fact, trying to convert Jews, that's a waste of time. The Jewish person who has its roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. Oh, man, somebody should have told Yeshua this. And all the apostles. Man, he says, there is no form of Christian evangelism that has failed so miserably as evangelizing the Jewish people. I mean, can you even believe that? He goes on to say, they already, speaking of the Jews, have a faith structure. Everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha, needs to believe in Jesus, but not Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity. They really, so the Jews don't need to become Christians. Well, why did Yeshua come to the Jewish people and preach the gospel to them and tell them they had to believe in Him? And why did His apostles go out to the Jews and do the same thing? And for 10 years, the church was nothing but Jewish. Does Hagee not know anything about the Bible? Obviously not. And I mean, Yeshua didn't agree with Hagee because Yeshua said this, I told you that you, he's talking to Jews here, I told you, Jews, that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So Hagee disagrees with Yeshua and most of the Bible. But he has a huge audience, a huge audience with his church and the TV ministry. And people are following this. Listen, if you could stomach it, I'd encourage you to watch one of his, you know, shows. It's like, you, it, it'll bother you. It really will. Because people are out there just yelling, amen, and praise the Lord, and, and you're thinking, what? And it's obvious that his congregation is not familiar with the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. Why are all these Christian leaders so supportive of Israel? I mean, where do they get the idea that Christians are to stand in support of Israel? Well, maybe the Tanakh, right? The Tanakh is filled with promises that God made to Israel. The nation was uniquely chosen by God to be a blessing and a source of blessing to the whole world. Genesis 12. Now Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
it was to Israel that God revealed Himself. It was to Israel that received the Messianic promises. And to mess with Israel is to mess with God. According to Zechariah 2.8, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After His glory sent Me to the nations who plundered you. For He who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of God's eye. You ever heard a dispensational preacher use that verse? You mess with this, you're sticking your finger right in God's eye. <laughs> they were God's chosen people. Look at Amos 3, 1 and 2. Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Obviously, God knew there were other people on the earth, but known here indicates an intimate relationship. Adam knew his wife. It's not like, oh, yeah, I know you. Hi, Eve. No, an intimate relationship. God had an intimate relationship with Israel. Out of all the families of the earth, He chose them. They were in a privileged position. But with privilege comes responsibility. And people want to stop right there in the verse, but let's read the rest of it. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. You know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Israel became proud. They missed the true end of all they had, which was the coming of the Lord Yeshua to atone for their sins. The Christian Zionist doesn't seem to realize that because of Israel's disobedience, God is finished with the nation Israel. He's finished. He's done. Look at what Yeshua had to say to the nation Israel in Matthew 22. And again, Yeshua spoke to them in prayer, parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, and they wouldn't come. Now, the king is God here. Son is Christ. Those invited are the nation Israel. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, they've been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. That's a reference to the prophets. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. What's that a reference to? That's AD 70. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. Very clearly, God says he's going to send it. He's going to take care of those murders. goes on. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main roads. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was filled with guests. Israel lost its privilege, and all nations were invited to come to the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Now, this destruction of the nation became their final rejection of Christ. It was prophesied from the very beginning. John the Baptist, in the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 3, said this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're Israelites, everything's good. He says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. So don't think you're too special. Got to turn these rocks into children if he needs to. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yeshua came in judgment on the nation Israel in AD 70, ending forever that nation. Its physical temple and sacrifices 
ended. If you look at Judaism today, it resembles nothing of Judaism prior to AD 70. They've changed. The main thing is they don't sacrifice anymore. That's the heart of Judaism, sacrifice, pointing to Christ. They they just kept on going. They changed everything and just kept right on rolling like it didn't matter. God is through with them. But most Christians think that Jews are special people and we have to protect them. In the book of Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, Yeshua said, you're of the synagogue of Satan, referring to Jews. Because that thing is over. That thing is done. God was finished with it. It served His purpose, and it ended. The Bible clearly speaks of Israel's total destruction as a judgment of God. Yet most Christians still believe they're God's chosen people. Here are some of the scriptures that show that the promised land and blessing were indeed conditional. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 8, um, 29, 30, Exodus 19. They all talk about the destruction. Physical Israel was destroyed because of her disobedience, listen, never to rise again. Yeshua predicted that the temple would be destroyed and the Jews exiled from the land as God's judgment for the failure to recognize Him as Messiah. Look at Luke 19. And when He drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, Jews, Israelites, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In AD 70, the lights went out in Israel for good. When the tribulation was over, physical Israel ceased to exist. The old covenant was over and the new had been fully instituted. The promises God made to old covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church today. Now, people don't like that. They have a problem with that. Oh, that's fulfillment theology or replacement theology. No, it's fulfillment theology. God is fulfilling what He said. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Very important here. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the promise made to Abraham and Christ. Man, if you get that, you got a whole lot here, okay? God made Abraham promises. All these great promises. We read some of them in Genesis 12, 3. The promises are made to one seed, Christ. Yeshua is the seed of Abraham, and if you by faith belong to Christ... You're Abraham's seed, and you're an heir according to the promise. Galatians tells us that. It doesn't matter whose blood you have in your veins. It's whose faith you have in your heart. It is covenant, not race, that makes you a child of God. We inherit all the promises made to Abraham through Christ. Everything we are and have is by virtue of our union with Christ, which only comes by faith. Listen carefully. The Abrahamic covenant was a promise made to Abraham and Yeshua, the seed of Abraham, that he would be made great, the father of many nations, and that in him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. The promise was fulfilled physically in Abraham and spiritually and ultimately in Christ. The promise was always to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, which is the church. 
The church people is not a temporary interruption in God's prophetic program for Israel as dispensationalism teaches. The church is the prophetic, prophetic fulfillment of that program because the church is true Israel. Covenant, not race, has always been the defining mark of the true Israel of God. And millions of 21st century Christians have allowed themselves to be robbed of one of the most precious and vital beliefs of historic Christian teaching, namely that the church is the true Israel of God, the only Israel through which God's eternal purpose is being consummated. Does eschatology matter? It sure does. Probably more than any of us realize. It's a major theological issue in the Scriptures. Salvation is tied historically to eschatology. It affects your worldview, and it affects your view of the modern-day nation of Israel. And that's huge. Because if we ever have peace in the Middle East, we're going to have, see an end to terrorism. It has to be, we have to impact America foreign policy. We've got to get you know, into Trump's ear, not these, you know, Hagee and those guys. We need some solid Christians who understand the Bible to get in his ear and give him some input. You say, well, he's not president. Kiss, give me, give me a month. Give me a month, okay? It ain't over, people. It is not over. If we're to have an impact on American foreign policy, we got to have an impact on American politicians. And if we're going to have an impact on American politicians, we have to have an impact on Christian Zionists. We must proclaim the truth of fulfilled eschatology. We must lovingly and aggressively seek to teach the truth of preterism because eschatology matters. If we teach this, yes, we're going to be persecuted. If we teach this, yes, we're going to be thrown out of churches. Okay? People are not going to talk to us. Friends will avoid us. I mean, we, you know, you've been through it. I get letters every week from people who say, I got thrown out of my church. I got thrown out of my Bible. So I can't do this. You know, people don't want to hear it. But they need the truth. Because the truth will set them free. So don't tolerate the bullying that comes, you know, from holding to the truth. We have nothing to fear for teaching and preaching the truth. But again, it's not very popular in the society in which we live where Israel is just some special people of God. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter who they kill, we got to stand behind them. That's wrong, people. And you can see how this Zionist movement has affected our politicians and our foreign policy. And it's destructive. So to answer the question, yes. Eschatology matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity just to gather together, Lord. I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you for the truth of the Word of God and how you have opened our eyes to see so many things. Father, I pray that we would be bold in our presentation of the truth to others around us. All that would give us an ear, Lord, may we be willing to share with them what the Bible actually teaches. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments, Gary? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the church is upside down, and that's the problem. You know, if we could get truth taught, but I think one of the main problems is nobody is teaching the Bible anymore. You know, we, we, we're putting on presentations now with light shows and smoke and all this stuff to attract people in to give them nothing. 
You know, we, we need to go back to basics of just taking the Bible and teaching it. I know that's a weird idea, isn't it? <laughs> Gary? Yeah, that's right. Uh, someone texted me and said, Land promise fulfilled. For the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. He got everything, and that included the little strip of land, promise fulfilled, as Paul said 2,000 years ago. They were fulfilled. All the promises are fulfilled. We're not looking for something to come in the future. Dispensationalists are. All right, and that's why they're trying to actually fulfill the prophecy to get. I haven't watched these televangelists for a long time, but I can remember they're doing these commercials. They're trying to get you to give money because they want to help get the Jews back to Palestine. And I'm thinking so that they can get there and the tribulation can start and they can all get killed. Do you tell them that part when you're trying to get them back to Palestine, Stan? Let me throw something out. Might be totally off base, but all these peace deals with Israel. Okay, maybe they're not to strengthen Israel, but just the opposite. And look, look was who was one of the first to congratulate Biden. Biden was congratulate what? When he became well, fake he president. congratulated who? Netanyahu. Oh, congratulated okay. him. oh yeah, Netanyahu. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, there. Yeah. Well, because Netanyahu wants to keep close ties with America, he wants America on their side. Mm-hmm. So they can do whatever they want to do, and America's backing them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I said, I mean, they reached out to Falwell before Reagan. Because they knew if they could get Falwell on their side, then, you know, politicians would follow because they got all these people backing them. Mm-hmm. 